Amen. Derek, thanks for leading us this morning. <laughs> Church family, if you would, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 this morning, as we turn to our second statement uh, in this Rooted series as we're looking at our church covenant, and that is assembling faithfully uh, for worship and fellowship. The way that our covenant reads is we will assemble faithfully for worship and fellowship. And so with that, hopefully you've already found Ephesians chapter 3, verses, uh, verse 1. I'd like for us uh, to take some time and again, like we did last week, recite our church covenant together. So if I could, if you're willing and able, this is not the Word of God, uh, but if I could have you stand and we could recite our church covenant uh, together. There we go. We acknowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ is head of the church, the ultimate and final authority in all matters. We, as members, have experienced the acceptance, forgiveness, and redemption of God our Father and accept the position of servant and steward with God's help through the guiding presence of His Spirit. I want to pause real quick. Dave, you're keeping up with, the, with them perfectly. But let's say this like we mean this. It's not a, a Roman creed to belt out as if we're going into war, but let's not read it like, this is my assignment my sixth grade English teacher gave me today, okay? This is our covenant that we as church members at First Baptist Church Eastwood have covenanted together. So I think we love it. I think we're excited to recite it. So let's Let's do so as we continue. So, we will practice brotherly love, assemble faithfully for worship and fellowship, and pray for others as well as for ourselves. We seek to prove the reality of our conversion by living godly, fruitful lives, and will be faithful stewards of our resources with people of all nations. We will seek by Christian example and personal effort to win others to Christ and encourage growth toward Christian maturity. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Let me say it was night and day different. So thank you all. Well, as we continue through this series called Rooted, remember we're thinking about as an organism how we are to be rooted. I heard from a family even this morning that because of the cold snap had to bring seedlings inside. Uh, I saw uh, on my way to the store yesterday, saw a cedar tree that was just totally uprooted by the wind that, that came through over the last few weeks. Roots are important. And so more than even just our church covenant, we want to be rooted in Christ. And so as we turn this morning to assembling faithfully for worship and fellowship, 
Uh, I want to just from the get-go uh, give, give like a disclaimer. If you're thinking, uh, if pastor just gives me an equation of what faithfulness looks like, man, this will be great. Like if it's 60% of attendance on these times and uh, 60% on these times, like, man, if that's what faithfulness means, like, praise the Lord, I will do that. That will be fine. And I hate to disparage you. The Bible doesn't give us that kind of equation. But I think as we go through Ephesians chapter 3 and we understand what it is that we do here, we'll hopefully get a vision for what it means to assemble faithfully together. So my main point this morning in looking at assembling faithfully for worship and fellowship is that the redeemed followers of Jesus gather together faithfully because it is through their worship gatherings that the gospel is made visible as they worship their God. Redeemed followers of Jesus gather together faithfully because it is through their worship gatherings that the gospel is made visible as they worship their God. I want to be completely transparent. There is a book uh, by the name The Church with a subtitle of The Gospel Made Visible, written by Mark Dever, that as I wrote this out, I think there are so many things that I've been influenced by his writings on the church that uh, that phrase just came out. So there may be things that almost as if a mirror uh, come from uh, Mark's ecclesiology, his understanding of the church. So give me grace and leniency if I happen to uh, quote him unknowingly. So if our main point is that redeemed followers of Jesus gather together faithfully because it's through their worship gatherings that the gospel is made visible as they worship their God, what do I want us to come away with? more than just uh, having a better percentage of worship attendance, more than any of those things, I want us to be able to see and be compelled with a vision for what this place, First Baptist Church Eastwood, can be in this community as we gather together worshiping our God. We'll do this through Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. But before we get into that, I want to kind of just give a brief history of the people of God and their worship of Him. The people of God and their worship of them, because I think that will frame our understanding of what we do here. Because we don't just come to uh, listen. We don't just come to see friends. Though those things are great, that's not the priority. That's not the primary reason we ought to come. So let's think immediately uh, to the people of God in its formation. You think of a post-Exodus people of God uh, at Sinai, that God reveals himself to Moses, uh, reveals himself then through the Exodus, and they are at the base of Sinai, God's people, Israel, and God instructs them of how they are to approach him. And you want to, hopefully you remember, the way to approach God in that time was don't. You want to approach God, don't. I will choose who will come before me, uh, Moses, a mediator. I will instruct him how you, as the people redeemed by my name, rescued through Exodus, will worship 
me. We see the unfolding of the law, that God gives his people commands. He gives them laws of how they are to relate to him, how they are to relate to his people. And then through Leviticus and other places, Deuteronomy and the like, he gives them further commands as to how they are to worship him. He gives them the instruction to build the tabernacle. Again, we're reminded that there was a separation that was very clear between God's people and him. He dwelt in the Holy of Holies. His people were layers beyond that. God's holiness could not be approached in this way. But not only was it out of fear and reverence that God's people come before him in the assembly together to both fear and tremble and offer sacrifices, but it was also to show praise. And it's to show among all of the other nations of that day that they are the redeemed people of God. That their worship, that their conduct should be different. They were to assemble in the tabernacle for worship. We then see this transition from a tabernacle. Think of a big old tent that you're going to a Boy Scout jamboree or something like that to where now Solomon gets to build a temple where God is to dwell. And again, it's this physical gathering point where God's people go to worship, to fear, revere him, to offer sacrifices, to hear God's word proclaimed, to be different from the world. All of these instructions, the sacrifices, the mediation, for the purpose of how to approach God through worship, but then going to the New Testament, something radical happens. Jesus and his resurrection. Even the Pharisees didn't understand when he says that he will tear down the temple, they expect it to be a physical temple made by hands. And they say, that's not really possible. But in this, Jesus, before his crucifixion and resurrection, in John chapter 4, he, he almost resets or recalibrates the Christian understanding of worship, that what does it look like for worship for the people of God? When? The Samaritan woman at the well says, you worship over here. And Jesus reminds, them, reminds her that there will be a day where you won't worship on this hill or on this hill, but you will worship him in spirit and in truth. We see then that the New Testament reality for those who have been redeemed in Christ, we don't have to go to a temple. Our very bodies are a temple. Paul reminds us we were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Your body is a temple. Take care of it well. Not only physical rest and exercise, but also fleeing from temptation, fleeing from sin. The reminder that he gives us is that you cannot be joined with God and a prostitute. Therefore, glorify God in your body body. So the thought is, perhaps you've heard things like this. 
yeah, in the Old Testament, like people needed to go to the tabernacle, they needed to go to the temple, they needed to do this, but now because Jesus, and because I have his spirit in me, I don't need the church. I don't need to gather together. I love Jesus. I just don't like his church very much. And on face value, we need to, we need to have some empathy there. Because when we hear that, certainly it could be smoke and mirrors, but most often I would say there's actually some things behind that are credible. Perhaps the mistreatment of individuals at the hand of an individual church. Perhaps infighting that just gets to the point where you're like, I just don't want to deal deal with this anymore. I'm just going to maybe not even go to another church, but just say, if that's all that this is, I just don't want any part of it. Give me my Bible, give me my prayer room, and we'll be fine. That's not what we have in view here. Why is there a necessity to assemble after the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ? You could give many different examples of this. Uh, Immediately, you think of Hebrews. Hopefully, you think of Hebrews. Where the writer of Hebrews says, don't neglect the gathering of one another. I had it in my notes, and I don't know where it went, but it is in Hebrews. I promise I could find you the passage later. We're also reminded and encouraged to see that it's not this individual spirituality. It's not an individual spirituality. In fact, it's corporate, that while we are redeemed individually, that life is to be expressed corporately through the family of God, through his redeemed people. I want to just be really transparent. If I had preached this sermon about 10 years ago, my understanding of the church would have been Matthew 18, verse 20, that a church is where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And while that's an awesome verse, and it's true of us right this moment, that there are more than two or three gathered in the name of Jesus, and we can have great encouragement that he is with us also, there's more to this. Church in the Greek uh, goes into what's the Greek word ecclesia, the gathering. So you think, okay, we just need a gathering point. We just need for those things uh, to happen. We need a place. We need a building. We need all, well, not entirely. So more than just the makeup of the church, I want us to be able to see, as we've seen the redeemed people of God and how they have worshipped throughout time, I want us to then be able to look at how we ought to do this in honoring our church covenant and in being able to see biblically why we are to gather. So my three points in the sermon are the heart 
of our gathering, the heart of our gathering. Why are we to do this? Not just a what, not just a command, but the, the heart behind it, the heart of our gathering. Secondly, the purpose of our gathering. What happens here? What happens here? And then thirdly and finally, the result of our gathering. The heart, the purpose, and the result of our gathering, the heart of our gathering. If I could, now seems as good a time as any uh, to bring a confession uh, to you. I really, really, I'm going to look for my water bottle. I really wanted to take this sermon in a different direction. I had statistics of worship attendance in the 21st century from 1993 to 2019. It was astronomical, the decline. I even brought up gym membership versus attendance statistics because that's a personal struggle in my own life. That was supposed to be funny. Hopefully, we attend church more than we attend the gym even, but the statistics showed there's actually a difference. But uh, it was going to be awesome. It was, uh, it was not going to be awesome. I was going to preach a cold sermon and convince you through all of these statistics and through guilt why you should assemble more faithfully to worship, right? And we all respond great to guilt, right? You would have hated it. We're not wired that way. We're not wired to hear that kind of message. And I, I got to be real honest with you. I'm not wired for that kind of preaching just yet. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, yeah, I'm not wired for that kind of preaching. But I think if we were to examine these thoughts of, I love Jesus, but I don't love his church. Perhaps, maybe we ourselves have examples of these things, our hearts wandering for different things. For me, it was late teens, early 20s. that The church that I grew up in really became something that I just didn't care about. Not because they wandered in any direction. I was wandering. Living a life that worshipped other things, I saw very clearly that what I wanted out of life was not what the church was about. And so I just did some simple math and said, I would really rather have my Sunday mornings to myself. I wanted no part of it, so I stopped attending. The late nights on Saturdays led to sleeping in on Sundays. as My heart and life went progressively away from the Lord. Now, let me be clear. I don't think that's us. If I were pressed to define our church's heart toward gathering, it would not be fleeing from God like I was. It would be that we, with an inundated schedule of so many different priorities, church gathering doesn't rank very high. Maybe better yet, we've attended church so much in our lifetime or in the last five years that I'm good 
I'm good. I, I, I know what the sermon text is. I'll read it on my own. I'm good. So how do we combat that? That's our heart with encroaching schedules, with a thought of, I don't know that I need this. I really think the only way that we can combat this is to be able to see what happens here. Because if somebody walks into our gathering and they're kind of just like, Man, this is, how old is this building? Like, this is, this is a beautiful building. And man, this is great. And you have a screen. Like, cool, that's cool. I have a screen at home too. Like, that's great. It reminds me of my living room. That's great. Who cares? If a person comes and, and they're so excited about the physical or, or ordainments of all of these different things, we've missed it. Purpose of our gathering is not those things. So, what is the purpose of our gathering? I'd ask for you to stand in honor of reading of God's Word, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. It'll be up on the screen as well. Hopefully, you've already found your place there. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit." This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly Places. May the Lord receive honor in the reading of his word. You may be seated. When we think about faithfulness, there is no equation. You're not going to type in some formula in Excel or Google Sheets and figure out what faithful means. But that is our charge in our covenant that we will assemble faithfully for worship and fellowship. What does faithfully mean? While I don't know any of the men who penned this covenant, I want to give two examples of what I think faithfulness ought to mean. Two examples of what I believe faithfulness ought to mean. That faithfulness ought to mean regular 
right? The warning in Hebrews is don't forsake the assembling of one another. So our assembling faithfully necessitates it being regular. But it can't just be regular because, as I've seen from my grandparents' farm with the turtle shells on the fence posts, it's weird. It's Oklahoma. That's what they do. I'm sure you can find it in Kentucky, too. You could say that that turtle is there because its shell is on the fence post, but it's not there probably was consumed in some type of soup. That's not in my notes. Let's get back. It can't just be regular because we know, as your pastor, I know there are Sundays where I'm here, but I'm not here. You might, don't say it, you might even be able to know what those Sundays are and what they aren't. You can sense when things are different. You can sense when perhaps struggling with sin is uh, something you can't get off of your face. The same is true for us. It could be a hard week at work. It could be a continued uh, schedule and fast pace that you just come in and it looks like that NASCAR car that just spins and spins and spins and just barely before it comes to a screeching halt gets its nose over the line. You just barely made it here. Assembling faithfully means both regularly and I think it should mean joyfully. Regularly and joyfully encompass faithfulness. What do I mean joyfully? Even if we just look at some of the things in this text in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, Paul's writing to these Gentiles who have been, uh, from from earlier in in Ephesians chapter 2, I'm stuck in Genesis up here, but in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, he says that they are enemies of God. They're separated. They're aliens of the commonwealth of Christ. But God, being rich in mercy. There is a heart here that when we come into this place that's been dedicated for the worship of Jesus Christ, that there's not just, hey, we want our bodies present, but our hearts are present too. Friends, that cold sermon that perhaps I would have preached had the Lord not convicted me would have been real heavy on being regular attenders at First Baptist Eastwood, but it would have missed the heart. Friends, if we've not been, if you've not been, if I've not been compelled and changed by this radical nature of the gospel that is as a Gentile, I've been brought in. This is the mystery Right? Paul over and over again in chapter four or in verse four and in verse six uses this terminology of the mystery, the mystery, the mystery. And you could be like, what's the mystery? The mystery is, verse six, that Gentiles are fellow heirs. What does that mean? We're family with the God who made all things. The God who in our uh, worship, in our, our call to worship, is the Lord of lords who rules over all the nations. Friends, he's your dad if you've trusted in his son. 
a, a verse I wanted to pull out last week as we talk about uh, those things of practicing brotherly love was in Hebrews, where the writer of Hebrews talks about Jesus and his affection and his love for us, obviously poured out on the cross, but it says he wasn't ashamed to call us brothers. Our Father sent His Son to make us brothers, to make us heirs with Him. That's the mystery. You're now heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise. How? Through the gospel. Friends, if that doesn't motivate you to want to be here, to be able to just heap enormous praise... Man, that ought to fill our hearts with joy. And as we get at the heart that it's regular and it's joyful, I want to move to the purpose. The purpose of our gathering. The purpose of our gathering. Essentially answering the question, what happens here? Something unique happens here. First, the proclamation of redemption through gospel truths. The proclamation of redemption through gospel truths. Remember, as we just went through verses 4 and verse 6, that these gospel truths that are truths for the Gentiles that Paul's writing to are truths for us. This mystery has been made known. That's why every single Sunday we preach Christ and Him crucified. For there is redemption and salvation in no other name. That's the first thing of what happens here. Let me ask you, where on earth are you going to hear that in a regular scheduled thing? Not at the movie theater, not at your job, not at school, Perhaps not even at your home. Where specific effort in proclaiming the redemption of God to wicked sinners like us is the priority. Only through the church. Friends, this should draw our hearts to want to be here all the time. And not only that, but as Brian taught us this morning in Sunday school, it should also fuel in us this mission that if this is the only place where the proclamation of redemption for sinners like us is happening, why are not more people here? Friends, if you go out of this place and the only thing that you get is that in my church, the proclamation of redemption through the gospel, if that's the only thing that you say, what happens at your church? You meet at 11, right? Like, what, what happens there? Well, you know, we, we sit and we sing. If the one thing you take home is, you know what? Whether it's Sean or whether it's Derek or whether it's a guest preacher who's filling the pulpit, we hear about how we have been redeemed in Jesus, and you can too. That would be good enough for me. If that's what you leave today, And that's all you get. But I've got more in my notes. I'm sure you're shocked. The purpose of our gathering. Point two, the glorification of Jesus through gospel-centered praise. The glorification of Jesus through gospel-centered praise. 
praise. There's not one particular text in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, that you could point to necessarily, but it's more of the heart of the text. It's Paul's reasoning. It's his rationale. I would even argue, say, it's the entire basis of the letter to the Ephesian church. That it is because of being in him that all praise and honor and glory is due him. Paul writing this letter to many people believe that it's not just to one single church, but it's to many churches in one region. Paul's desire is that they would see this mystery and would give glory to this son, right? Are made, verse 6, made partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. The overflow of our hearts and the overflow of the heart of the Ephesian church is that we can't help it. We bring glory to Jesus. We sing with hearts on fire. One of the things that Derek and I reflect on when we have our staff meetings is just how our church is singing. And we've been so... I don't know if overwhelmed, but just so encouraged that from Easter on, there's been this, this spark. I won't call it a flame, but there's a spark because I want to encourage you to keep, keep fan a flame, as Paul tells Timothy. But we've been so encouraged, even sitting over there singing with you, hearing us all heap glory and praise of the victory that's already been won, of it's only in Christ, all of these things. What an amazing Thing. And when Derek pulled back that end uh, verse, I don't know, I'm not a musician. It could be a chorus, it could be a verse, I don't know. But when he did it, and just hearing your voices, the glorification of Jesus through gospel-centered praise. We don't come in saying, man, I earned this, I did everything, and now God's on my side. No, the gospel is you're unworthy of this. So we bring this praise, this Glory that's only because of the gospel. The glorification of Jesus through gospel-centered praise. Third, the edification of the saints through gospel-seen and heard realities. The edification of the saints through gospel-seen and heard realities. I don't mean to belittle anyone. If I didn't go to seminary, I would have no idea what edification meant. The building up. The building up of the saints through gospel seen and heard realities. First, we see this through baptism. That there is a reminder in baptism that the message we proclaim is true. As that person is submerged in believer's baptism, signifying death to life. We not only see it in Baptism, we also see it in our other ordinance as believers through the Lord's Supper. That this gospel we proclaim, the only way that we are able to be partakers in this good news is that someone died in our place. And his name is Jesus, and his body was actually broken, and his blood was actually shed to atone for our sin. Those are the two ordinances that we can see with our eyes, what we read in the text. But not only that, we get to see and hear these gospel realities through the preaching, singing, praying, and testimonies of others. 
through the preaching, singing, praying, and testimonies of others. Friends, we come to this place in the midst of chaos around us. We may not walk out the doors and see homelessness at radical levels or criminals running the streets of Eastwood. But we recognize, should recognize, that there's a fight. There is a battle at hand. And it's not with flesh and blood. It's not with neighbors. And it's not with shop owners. Paul later in Ephesians says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But it's against powers and principalities of darkness. Friends, we come to the church because we need it. Think of this not only as an outpost of God's kingdom, right? One little sea church in a part of this big sea church that one day we're going to be before the throne of God if we've trusted in his son. And we're all, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation going to heap praises. We get to taste that now. Almost as if a, a demilitarized zone where we just need everything of this world to wash away and we need to reground our hearts, our thoughts, our minds in the good news of Jesus. Friends, these gospel-seen and heard realities are what the church has and it builds up the saints through them. That's what happens here. The proclamation of redemption through gospel truths, the glorification of Jesus through gospel-centered praise, and the edification of the saints through gospel-seen and heard realities. And what, as we've looked at the heart, as we've looked at what happens, what is the purpose of our gathering, finally, let's turn to the result. What happens after we've met? What is the result of our gathering? As Paul expounds verses 7 through 9, he begins to talk about this gospel that he was made a minister, uh, talking about these unsearchable riches of the Gentiles being brought in and bringing to light, verse 9, for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, verse 10, so that through the church, through the what? Through the what? Church. Through the what? Church. Sorry, I just, that was exciting for me. Um, <laughs> through the church. Not through the governmental agency who provides handouts and support and praise the Lord for that. Not through the school system or through education of reaching this higher enlightenment. Not through these other things. But it's through the church. It's through the church that the wisdom of God, I don't know what a manifold is in this particular meaning. I know what a different kind of manifold is. But the manifold wisdom, the all-encompassing wisdom of God, and Paul grounds it in, who made all things? You're like, hmm, that seems like a lot. The fully 
orbed knowledge and wisdom of God might be made known through the church. Friends, that's the vehicle. That's the vehicle for life change. That's the vehicle for community change. That's the vehicle for radical change. I love the book of Acts. It's a good thing that we're preaching through it next. But there's this passage where uh, I believe it's Paul and Silas. It might be Paul and Barnabas. Paul and one of his uh, buddies going through town and they cause such a stir that the rulers in the city say, what are you doing? You've taken away our livelihood. You're turning the city upside down. Friends, that's what the church does. The result of our gathering is that the nations and inferior kings are put on notice. I said this so clearly in Sunday school, almost as if it was a point in my sermon. The nations and inferior kings are put on notice through the church. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul gives us this otherworldly view in the heavenly places. He's used this phrase earlier, that he's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What's he doing? He's doing the same thing here as he was doing in chapter 1. He's saying there's nothing out of the realm and scope of what I'm saying here. Not just earthly authorities and rulers, but all of them. Satan's been put on notice. The president of Russia has been put on notice. Any wicked and evil king has been put on notice through our proclamation of the gospel. Because it's that gospel that is the power of God to save both the Jew and the Gentile. Friends, I hope, perhaps maybe in this schedule of, I know that I need to be at church on Sunday morning, and it comes up every Sunday, gosh, it's such a drag. Maybe it's not that, but it's like, oh, well, Sunday, you know, let's get all gussied up and let's come. To... Friends, I hope more than anything that you see what we do here, what we do here. What is being done here as the Spirit works among the Word to proclaim, to glorify, and to edify, and to notify nations and kings that this place is not big enough for the two of them. He will rule and reign. He will rule and reign. He is ruling and reigning, and sometimes it's hard to see it. That's what we do here. That's the result. And friends, if you're here, and perhaps you say, wow, I've never really heard it like that, or perhaps when I come to church, I don't really think about it like that, 
Let me just give you an opportunity to confess that as we pray in a little bit to the Lord, that He, by His Spirit, through His Word, would convict us. That He'd convict me, that when I get up here a quarter to eight, and I'm like, oh man, i got to print off the bulletins again, i got to do these. No, what we get to do here is we get to shine the light on our King, who actually, really, powerfully saved us. And it's the only hope for this entire world. That's what we do here at 11 a.m. on Sunday morning at 16122 Eastwood Cutoff Road. Friends, I pray that your heart would be so overjoyed and that there wouldn't be anything that could come in between you and that time frame and being here. But perhaps you say, my heart's really not for this king. This sounds good, I guess. But I don't know that I am feeling it just yet. So the response for you is not to pray that the Lord would guide you and correct you in this. Your response would be to pray that the Lord would save you. Perhaps you've been here and you've sat in the pew and you've sat in the pew of other churches for years and years and years. And the reality of the purposes that we meet here to do are not true of your own life. Your response is to cry out in faith to the Lord. You can do that this morning. You can come up at the end of our service and talk with Derek, talk with myself. I'll be at the back as we dismiss. To be able to pray, what does it look like to have this? I pray that that would be your response. In conclusion, beloved, I'm speaking to our church. Those who have covenanted, those who have credible testimonies and professions of faith, beloved, we have, in a given month, at least 11 opportunities for gathering. Four during Sunday school, four during gathered worship. I'm going to include this one, and you might be like, I don't think so. One business meeting, that's worship too. One prayer meeting, and one worship night. It may seem radically ordinary what we do here, but as we've seen, its result is extraordinary that through the church, through our regular gathering and worship of this gospel, it's through that that all inferior powers are put on notice as we regularly and joyfully proclaim the power of the gospel and our King. What else could be greater? What else could be of greater importance? What else more nobler use of your time? I don't know who said it, but I heard it from one of my pastors. That what we need is a king. A king, his kingdom, and something to fight for. Friends, we have a great king. And his kingdom is shown through this church. What's of greater importance? What a more nobler use of your time. May our hearts 
be fueled with a love for our King, a love for his bride, the church. And may we be able to say, as our covenant commands, we will assemble faithfully. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths that are ours through the gospel, as seen in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. Father, grip our local church with this reality that what we do here is world-changing. Father, may we see the hope that lies within these walls, and may we proclaim it up on the rooftops to those in our community and be able to say we have hope. And his name is Jesus, so come and see. Father, thank you for those who are here. May we be faithful. May you draw those who are far from you, those who might be tethered in sin, to live for you and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.